Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... It's quite interesting and odd, because we don't know what causes sexual orientation at all. Much of the research is focused on what causes non-heterosexual orientation, but we don't know what brings about heterosexual people either. Professor Michael King discusses stigma in psychiatry seen through the lens of sexuality and gender. Welcome to the first ever episode of the BJ Psych International Podcast. My name is Sachin Shah and I am a general adult trainee working in London and I'm joined by my co-host Hamilton Morin. Hi, I am an FY1 doctor working at Guys in St. Thomas's. And we're going to be going through the editorial for the November issue of the journal, and it is by Professor Michael King, Professor of Primary Care Psychiatry in the Division of Psychiatry, Faculty of Brain Sciences at UCL. He's a psychiatric epidemiologist and a trialist within the UCL Primant Clinical Trials Unit. And among his interests are the stress and stigma faced by gay and lesbian people and the role of religious and spiritual beliefs in mental well-being. Hamilton, what does the editorial concern? So this editorial is specifically looking at stigma in psychiatry through the lens of sexuality and gender, which is, I think, quite important. And there's a lot of history behind that, especially when you look at homosexuality previously being seen as a diagnosis, a form of mental illness. King's editorial discusses the medicalization of homosexuality from the 19th century onwards. When the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, listed known mental disorders in their first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-1, in 1952, the term homosexuality was among those disorders as a sociopathic personality disturbance. This was literally the APA establishing their jurisdiction, and being gay was very much part of that jurisdiction. It was defined as a disorder that psychiatrists ought to try and manage. So it being a sociopathic personality disturbance meant that you didn't need to be distressed or anxious about having it, which conveniently counted people who were gay and had no issue with it. It was the behaviour that mattered rather than the distress it caused. So what the first DSM made clear was how something could be a mental disorder because it breached social norms. The DSM-2 came out in 1968. Homosexuality remained as part of it, but now classed as a sexual deviation. That's along the lines of other disorders within that category, such as paedophilia and exhibitionism. Now, there was a strong queer rights activist movement. For context, the DSM-2 was published in 1968, whilst the Stonewall riots took place in 1969. From 1970, there's accounts of queer activists specifically protesting the APA and disrupting their annual meetings, including in 1971, when the APA held their convention in Washington, D.C. Frank Kameny, who is referred to as one of the most significant figures in the gay rights movement, grabs the microphone during something called the Convocation of Fellows. He said, Psychiatry is the enemy incarnate. Psychiatry has waged a relentless war of extermination against us. You may take this as a declaration of war against you. Of course, it wasn't just protests, but Discourse was moving along too, including within psychiatry and academia, 
for example, psychiatrists were seeing a lot of advancing research on sexuality from the likes of Alfred Kinsey and Evelyn Hooker. This was also occurring on the backdrop of a general anti-psychiatry movement, which the queer rights movement acted alongside. Apart from members of the queer rights movement protesting at major meetings, some members of the LGBT rights community were in fact invited to panels at meetings held by the APA. In 1971, Frank Kameny was invited to be a panelist along with activist Barbara Gittings on a panel called Gay is Good. And they were telling the assembled psychiatrists about the stigma associated with being gay. And this was genuinely the first time a lot of these psychiatrists there were hearing about this kind of thing. There was also a similar panel at the 1972 annual APA meeting where Frank Kameny and Barbara Gittings were joined by a Dr. John Fryer who remained anonymous at the panel and spoke as, quote, a homosexual psychiatrist. And he spoke about the discrimination that gay psychiatrists experienced within their own profession. By 1973, the APA were adjusting their definition of what constituted mental disorder. And so we reach a stage that mental disorders require subjective distress or are associated with generalized impairment in social effectiveness of functioning. And homosexuality in itself is hard to fit in that framework. And so, with this new definition, the APA Board of Trustees vote to remove homosexuality from the DSM. But it's not without controversy. The APA president, for example, stressed that the motion was not to be viewed as a pronouncement that homosexuality was either normal or preferable to heterosexuality. Amid this controversy, they decided to hold a wider referendum. And when the vote went to the wider APA members, the removal of homosexuality was upheld only by a majority of 58%, with 37% opposing. So the membership were really split on the issue, and there were even efforts to overturn the result. And you can imagine the optics for the reputation of psychiatry, deciding if something is a disorder or not by vote. Nevertheless, homosexuality leaves the DSM too. Kind of. It gets replaced with sexual orientation disturbance, which then in the DSM-3 becomes ego-dystonic homosexuality, which is basically a concession that homosexuality per se isn't a disorder, but being distressed by it is. Which is problematic in its own way, because it still opens the door for psychiatric treatment and other eyes as being gay as something that you may be ego-dystonic about that apparently doesn't go for other characteristics. Like, there's no disorder for being unhappy about your age, for example. So homosexuality still isn't yet seen as this normal variant of sexuality, really. And it's only by the DSM-3R in 1987, which is awfully recent, that ego-dystonic homosexuality is removed, and we're finally not singling out same-sex attraction as a pathology. Alongside the psychiatric narrative, Professor King also describes the legislative narrative. In the UK, same-gender contact between men was a criminal offence, and in the early 1950s, the government looked towards the British Medical Association, the BMA, for guidance on whether this needs to be adjusted. I was quite surprised by the BMA's response to this. To quote Professor King's editorial, the BMA considered that homosexual habits arose from a defective home life and loose living parents, 
and was encouraged by seduction or imitation. Recommendations from the BMA included segregation of homosexual men from mainstream society, physical treatments to cure the disorder, and a strong steer that homosexuals not be employed in sensitive occupations such as the Church of England, the civil service, or the armed forces. So it was almost in spite of this advice that the government committee looking into this still recommended change in 1957, which was enacted by parliamentary legislation in 1967 to decriminalise same-gender contacts between men. That was followed by more changes in the UK, such as in the 90s there were changes to the age of consent laws for same-gender relationships, and then there was the introduction of civil partnerships in 2004. The Equality Act came in 2010, and then we finally got same-sex marriage in 2013. Again, this all seems incredibly recent. Worldwide, state-sanctioned homophobia and transphobia still persists. The International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association published in its 2019 report on state-sponsored homophobia that only 64% of UN member states do not criminalise consensual same-sex acts. Only 5% of UN member states have constitutional protection against discrimination based on sexual orientation. This does not include the UK, but it does include Fiji, Sweden, Portugal, Malta, Nepal, Mexico, Ecuador, Bolivia, and South Africa. Meanwhile, 27% of UN member states have broad protections against sexual orientation discrimination, and that does include the UK. Now, only three UN member states banned conversion therapies, and this did not include the UK, but did include Malta, Brazil, and Ecuador. And the UK is among only 13% of UN member states to legalise same-sex marriage, and is among only 14% of UN member states to legalise joint adoption among same-sex partners. And this almost seems a running theme, but medicine seems to lag behind social progresses. And Professor King describes that as recently as the 1980s, 30% of doctors in the USA did not think that gay students should be admitted to medical school, and 40% would not allow gay doctors to specialize in pediatrics or psychiatry. Meanwhile, lesbians and gay men were effectively debarred from training in the main psychoanalytical schools in the USA and the UK. Professor King notes that while mainstream psychological treatments to make gay and bisexual people heterosexual fell into disrepute in the 1980s, so-called conversion or reparative treatments took their place and are still practiced today. Stonewall published their Unhealthy Attitudes report in 2015, which found that one in ten health and social care practitioners with direct responsibilities for patient care have witnessed staff in their workplace express the belief that someone can be cured of being lesbian, gay or bisexual. Malta is the first and still only European country to legally ban conversion therapies back in 2016. A Malta government press release at the time read, The affirmation of sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression bill effectively criminalizes conversion practices, which is any practice which aims to change, repress, or eliminate a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression by imposing fines and jail terms on those advertising, offering, or 
performing such practices. In addition, this bill affirms that no sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression constitutes a disorder, disease, or shortcoming of any sort. And this is in a predominantly Catholic country. Indeed, so are Brazil and Ecuador, where conversion therapies are also banned, which does show that while religion plays a part in attitudes towards LGBT communities, there is a much more complex interplay, along with legislation and social values that also affect these attitudes. Professor King's editorial also tackles how psychiatry is engaged with the trans community. Trans identities have been coded in psychiatric manuals as gender identity disorder in the World Health Organization's ICD-10 from 1992 and in the APA's DSM-4 from 1994. So we've been medicalizing trans identities much like we used to medicalize same gender sexual orientation. Not only does such coding in psychiatric manuals set out that trans and non-binary people have a mental disorder, it again places them within psychiatry's jurisdiction and makes psychiatrists the gatekeepers of certain interventions that trans people may need to affirm their experienced gender. But it does seem that this diagnosis is being dropped, certainly from the psychiatric chapter of ICD-11, and only remaining in the DSM-5 as gender dysphoria. The APA describes gender dysphoria as a marked difference between the individual's expressed-slash-experienced gender and the gender others would assign him or her, and it must continue for at least six months. They argue that going with the term dysphoria removes the connotation that the individual is disordered, APA's definition of gender dysphoria also states that the condition should cause clinically significant distress or an impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, which may not fit with the experience of all trans people. The APA addressed the need to keep gender dysphoria codified in the DSM because to remove it would jeopardize access to care by removing insurance coverage for the medical treatments, including counseling, cross-sex hormones, gender reassignment surgery, and social and legal transition, because insurance coverage requires a diagnosis. The World Health Organization gets around the issue of ensuring access to care for trans people by coding trans identities as gender incongruence in ICD-11 and moving this diagnosis from the mental and behavioral disorders chapter and into the new conditions related to sexual health chapter. The World Health Organization said that codifying trans identities in this way reflects the evidence that trans-related and gender-diverse identities are not conditions of mental ill health, and classifying them as such can cause enormous stigma. They said inclusion of gender incongruence in the ICD should ensure transgender people's access to gender-affirming healthcare, as well as adequate health insurance coverage for such services. Recognition in the ICD also acknowledges the links between gender identity, sexual behaviour, exposure to violence, and sexually transmitted infections. Professor King's editorial states that all this stigma has, quote, had consequences on the health, well-being, and social inclusion of those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. He says, this history suggests we need to examine where psychiatry and psychology are making similar mistakes today. To hear more about this topic, we spoke to Professor Michael King about his editorial. The editorial begins with Professor King identifying a contradiction. Psychiatrists want to eliminate stigma towards mental illness worldwide. However, he writes, 
it's sometimes forgotten that mental health professionals may hold similar stigmatizing attitudes as those held by the general public. I asked Professor King to tell me more about this contradiction. Yes, it's a paradox here, but it's a historical paradox, because I think it's only really in recent decades that psychiatrists have tried to improve public attitudes to mental illness. Much of what I was talking about was in the second half, or even across the whole of the 20th century, when not just psychiatrists, but psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, and other mental health professionals held attitudes to non-heterosexuality that were quite stigmatizing, as well as paralleling religious and conservative views in society, also drove those in a vicious cycle so that gay or lesbian or transgender people could read about themselves, could hear about themselves, often in quite disturbing medical terms, but they all grew together to negatively influence how they felt about themselves. It's a paradox in that medical professionals and psychology professionals tended to mirror, as they often do, the more conservative attitudes in society. But this particularly happened in the mid-20th century or even earlier. And so we had this very strange picture where mental health professionals ended up perpetuating the stigma because gay or lesbian people, when they read about themselves or looked up information about themselves, saw themselves in this medical model that somehow they were ill as well as evil in religious terms. But at the same time, this could offer help because treatment was available in some way to make them more like the heterosexual mainstream. And so it was quite stigmatizing for families as well because they would look up homosexuality and find that it was a disorder, that if they had a son or daughter who had said they were gay or lesbian or whatever the term was they used, they would then try to say, well, look, this is a disorder, you can get treatment and so forth. So it very much stigmatized the illness, what was regarded as an illness, but it was seen at first as liberating. The courts, for example, in the 50s and 60s in Britain, would sometimes divert people to psychiatrists, men, because legislation was only against same-sex behavior in men, they would divert men to a psychologist or a psychiatrist for treatment because they thought, one, that would help them in the long run, come straight, but it would also help them avoid prison. So you can see this dilemma of professionals thinking they were helping while at the same time perpetuating the myth of illness and abnormality. It's quite interesting because I actually never thought about the other side how in the mid-20th century to say for families it's not their fault it's a condition i guess i'd never considered that nuance before obviously it's still incorrect but through a different societal lens and through a historical lens you can see how there might have been some comfort from the fact that this maybe could be medicalized right almost as if the lesser of two evils is to make it a medical diagnosis as opposed to a criminal act which can result in punishment we know that there may be risks to medicalizing sexuality and medicalizing gender. And so I asked Professor King what risks he thought were present in medicalizing these things. Yes, there's always risks. It was a double-edged sword because many of the early sexologists felt that they were showing that it was a natural phenomenon and therefore should be accepted as any other natural phenomenon. But unfortunately, the conservative forces in society saw that is something to be changed, something to be treated. 
So there's always a danger in that. And we see this not just with sexuality, but with any human variation that is identifiable as coming from whatever natural cause. But it, it's such a strange thing to consider that because not only biological causes can be subject to treatments. Homosexuality was largely seen in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis as something learned or mislearned, as this was the case. It wasn't all seen as biological. So I'm not sure that biological causes are any more subject to treatment than psychological. I think it is interesting, that point about how a condition doesn't necessarily have to have a biological basis to be treatable. Still, that hasn't stopped people from trying to look at sexuality and gender from a biological basis. I asked Professor King what he made of attempts to, say, isolate a genetic basis to sexual orientation. Yes, it's the old gene-environment argument, really. It's not new to this area. I think an enormously complex human characteristic, like sexual orientation, is never going to be reducible to a so-called gay gene. It will always involve a whole range of genetic origins, if it is genetic. But of course, there are other biological causes. It can be constitutional, it could occur during development in the womb or later. It isn't necessarily primarily genetic. But the evidence does show us that there is nothing that anyone can really point up as important in childhood development. In other words, parenting has not really been found to be any different between heterosexual and non-heterosexual people. Now, this is all retrospectively, because you can't really monitor parenting as it occurs, but there's nothing to indicate that the histories of gay men or lesbians is different in any way to the histories of heterosexual, save for a couple of points. One is that often people who are destined to be non-heterosexual have different play habits, sometimes with toys or with contact sports, and also boys destined to be gay men more often report underage sexual contacts with same-sex partners. They're the two things that come out. Now, the latter one is often grasped upon by conservative forces who believe that somehow boys are being seduced into being homosexual. There's absolutely no evidence of that, but it might be that boys destined to be non-heterosexual have more opportunities for welcome or, or not necessarily negative same-sex contacts earlier on than heterosexual boys do. That may be all that's going on there. What Professor King has said is so important, especially when we live in a society where parents are protesting outside schools, campaigning against their children, even being taught about the existence of gay men, lesbian women and trans people because they believe it will result in their children being more likely to be LGBT. It's also important in terms of parental upbringing of the child and not having anything to do with the child being straight, gay, trans, because a lot of psychological therapy that was used for conversion plays into this idea. So looking at Professor King's paper where he states that the theory went that homosexuality arose from an incomplete bond and resultant identification with the same gender parent, which is then symbolically repaired in psychotherapy. I asked him how he felt about the fact that certain frameworks linked parenting to the development of non-heterosexual or non-cisgender identities. 
That's part of the stigma I'm describing here because that put an enormous burden on parents of young people who weren't heterosexual uh, in terms of blaming themselves or searching for reasons that they may have brought about this sexual orientation. It's quite interesting and odd because we don't know what causes sexual orientation at all. Much of the research is focused on what causes non-heterosexual orientation, but we don't know what brings about heterosexual people either. And the research needs to be much more balanced towards that. Yes, there's absolutely no evidence that parenting leads to variation in sexual orientation. There may be some sort of reverse causality, if you like, if you want to call it causality. You know, young boys or young girls destined to be non-heterosexual may interact differently with their parents. In other words, they may induce different behaviours from their parents because they are of a nature that's going to turn out to be non-heterosexual. And one example might be, we know that boys who are not going to be heterosexual tend to dislike or not like as much rough contact sports. And that may disappoint a father who's very interested in that sort of sport. And you can see uh, the same for a girl who may be more tomboyish in her attitudes, doesn't fit in with her own mother's interests. So it's very difficult to understand causality, in quotes, in this area. Professor King writes that we as psychiatrists have been involved in the medicalizing of homosexuality, going as far as to codify it within our diagnostic frameworks. I wanted Professor King's opinion on whether its codification and then removal from the DSM reflected the knowledge at the time, or whether it was led perhaps more by social change and social activism. You're absolutely right. I think that social pressure from gay and lesbian activist groups um, was the main driver in this. It wasn't scientific evidence. Scientific evidence followed on the heels of that, but the main driver was changing attitudes in society, far more tolerant and accepting attitudes, even celebration of non-heterosexual sexual orientation. And I think that's interesting exactly, as you pointed out, that psychiatry can be buffeted in either direction. And that's rather worrying because you would rather hope that psychiatry evolved on the basis of evidence. But here, happily, the evidence does follow the more tolerant attitudes in society. But we see it everywhere. It isn't just psychiatrists and psychologists that I'm singling out here. You can see the same arguments going on in religious institutions such as the Church of England or Islamic practice that the conservatives tend to see this as a disorder and will cling on to things like reparative therapy because they have been really practiced much more recently within religious settings, not within psychotherapy settings. So it isn't just psychiatrists and psychologists to blame for this. There are other conservative practitioners, if you like, within religion that have perpetrated this well beyond when psychiatrists did. I guess it really does go to show, Hamilton, that although we like to think of psychiatry as a medical discipline which is bound to evidence and scientific knowledge, sometimes it is the social norms that guide us. And I asked Professor King if he felt that certain groups may have been involved in lobbying psychiatrists to come to a decision to decodify homosexuality as a mental illness. I think so, to some extent. And I think the psychiatrists and psychologists, because they are as much or even more implicated in this, 
their own personal beliefs are very important. So you tend to find reparative therapies, if they're given by psychologists and psychiatrists, are given by those with strong religious convictions. So there's an overlap here between the two types of conservatism, if you like. But although we can talk at length about the origins of all this, the damage done to non-heterosexual people has been enormous. And we know the fallout from those therapies is very negative, leading to self-harm and even in some cases suicide. So it, it isn't just an intellectual point. This is having real or has had real effects on non-heterosexual people and their families and friends. I wanted to know more about the harms that the psychiatric outlook and therapies may have caused to people within the LGBT community. It's difficult to say. We studied this in an oral history study. The only way you can really get at it is to study people many years after they've gone through reparative or reorientation therapies. And we've done that in this country, and it's been done in the United States, particularly in the Church of Latter-day Saints or Mormons, who are a religious group that have really championed reparative therapies. And if you look at the results of that, you can see that fallout, in other words, distress, confusion over sexual orientation, inability to form partnerships, self-hatred, goes on for sometimes decades afterwards. There's a recent survey within the Church of England that was conducted by Jane Ozan, who also shows that this is not uncommon. And the government's own very large survey of over 100,000 gay and lesbian people, which has been the largest survey in the world, showed that about 5% at some time in their lives had tried to undergo therapies of these types, which had had long-term negative effects on their health. And that sounds absolutely horrible, but Sachin, would you say that things have improved? I was wondering that myself, and I placed that question to Professor King. I think we've enormously changed it. And my editorial was really an historical take on this. I think within the United States, Europe, Australasia, it's changed out of sight. And very few psychiatrists would ever consider this. Unfortunately, sometimes the patients who are very distressed about being gay or lesbian now regard their psychiatrists as too liberal. I've had patients come to see me terrified that I'm going to tell them it's all right to be gay or lesbian. So sometimes it can seem too far to people who are feeling very stigmatized. But generally, this has been a huge leap. The unfortunate thing is that that is not the case all around the world. And we know that in the Arab countries, in sub-Saharan Africa, and in parts of Eastern Europe, the situation is unchanged and still very difficult. In Russia, in particular, uh, new documents have been written in the last five years about how to treat so-called sexual disorders. And some of these are quite frightening to read because they include people with same-sex desire. In that country, too, psychology blogs have been closed down by the authorities. These were blogs where teenage gay and lesbian people could just talk together and get some mutual help and support, and they were closed down because they were seen as undesirable. And I think it's generally known now that Russia, about three years ago, brought in this anti-propaganda law 
which was a bit like Margaret Thatcher's Clause 28, to stop the expansion of so-called, as they view it, homosexual propaganda. So there are many parts of the world that are going backwards, not forwards. Actually, that does remind me, um, one of the biggest economies in the world, China, I've read a bit recently about laws against homosexuality there and certain apps that members of the LGBT community would use to socialise or arrange meetups being completely banned in the country. Yeah, so I'd say that the UK, for example, still has massive problems with homophobia, transphobia, discrimination against the LGBT community, but we do sometimes not see outside the scope of our country and actually how suppressed it can be elsewhere. Mm. But it's important to think about why there is a discrepancy across the world in terms of attitudes towards LGBT people. And so I put it to Professor King whether he thought that these discrepancies could be explained by societal values, legislation, or religion. I think it's all three. It's very complicated to work out why it occurs and why it changes so suddenly. I mean, there have been, even in the face of the AIDS epidemic in North America and Europe in the 80s and 90s, where it seemed that attitudes to gay men in particular, but also lesbians, took a huge back step. In that same period, the conversion treatments began to die out and attitudes became far more positive. I think that's come about because of several things. There's been legislation, but openness and activism by gay and lesbian people no longer willing to tolerate this sort of thing has made a huge difference. So when prominent people come out in all sections of society, people begin to think, hey, you know, my uncle or the person I admire as a celebrity is gay, so there's not so much wrong with it. So those things have moved ahead of any actions, I think, by psychiatrists or psychologists who do tend to follow trends in society, I'm afraid. Yeah, and it's interesting how nowadays we're not only seeing celebrities coming out as gay, lesbian, trans, but even coming out as non-binary as well, with the recent example of Sam Smith being in the headlines. Well, it's interesting that you mention non-binary as a gender identity because Professor King writes in his editorial that not all people who are transgender and gender non-conforming self-identify as transgender. They may regard themselves as gender fluid, gender non-conforming, or non-binary. And he says, a similar evolution is underway in the current generation of younger people who do not identify with the traditional groupings of heterosexual, lesbian, gay, or bisexual to describe their sexual orientation. And so he says that these changes show how more natural groups arise when psychiatric labels are discarded and people feel free to self-identify in new ways. So gender identity disorder, which was first used as a term in the ICD-10 1992 and then DSM-4 in 1994, is actually on its way out and has in fact been removed from recent drafts of the ICD-11, which is due to come into play in 2022. And now they're switching instead to the term gender incongruence, and this is no longer within the psychiatric or mental disorder section, but rather in the chapter on sexual health. So with trans identity moving out of the psychiatric chapter, I asked Professor King what he felt 
psychiatry's role will continue to be within the trans population? And will we continue to be the gatekeepers of medical transitioning? I think not. I think that now it is not a psychiatric diagnosis. The role of psychiatrists is much more ambivalent in this field. I have to say that the evidence we have about how transgender people suffer is much less complete, but it suggests that they have even more negative mental health consequences from stigma and discrimination as lesbians and gays. Uh, On conversion therapy, it's much more muddled because here conversion therapy means a different thing. In lesbian and gays, it was making them straight. But in transgender people, it's forcing them to be happy in the gender in which they were registered at birth. And that's a slightly different thing. And it's much more difficult to get evidence for it. It doesn't seem that conversion therapies were that common. We've undertaken a systematic review recently about this. But certainly, transgender people have been blocked from getting effective transition therapies. And that's the trouble here, because, for example, insurance companies in the United States require a diagnosis in order to pay for the transition. So it's a very much more complicated field. And I think trans people have suffered enormously, but things are changing a lot for them too. The one remaining controversial area which is causing a lot of angst in Western society is trans children and how treatment or accommodation of their distress should be carried out. And I think the jury is open on that because we don't have good enough evidence to say how long does those feelings of gender incongruence last in young children. I'm talking children between the ages of three and ten, and whether these children should go on into treatments such as puberty blocking treatments. All these things are fraught with one angst, as you would imagine, because you're dealing with a person's whole life, but also the lack of evidence about the effectiveness of treatment. We've got good evidence on the effectiveness of transition for trans adults, and they generally do well, but children, we still don't know. We thank Professor Michael King for his time and the fascinating outlook he gave us on the history of psychiatry's role in the stigmatization of LGBT communities and how we can progress in the future. I'll leave you with what he writes for Lessons for the Future at the end of his editorial. What have we learned in terms of psychiatry and stigma? Most of all, we need mental health professionals to stand apart from current cultural prejudices. A current example where the process has spun into reverse is to be found in Russian society, where political and public attitudes to homosexuality have hardened. As they do so, there are signs that Russian medicine is following suit in regarding sexual minority people as mentally disordered. This peculiar history of treatment of people who are LGBT impels us to seek out where psychiatry and psychology are making similar mistakes today. My takeaway from this, especially the pre-reading we did, was that it really surprised me how much of a fight it was for homosexuality to be removed per se as a condition from the diagnostic frameworks in America and in the ICD. Because you look at history extremely summarized and you think, okay, it was a condition in the DSM-1 and it got removed from the DSM-3R. But what Mm. you don't see is the mass amount of fighting, not just within 
the psychiatric profession, but also the activism that was required socially from outside the profession for this to come about. And it tells me that we need to be cautious about taking credit for being progressive when it really does seem like, certainly in the 70s onwards, and certainly even looking at the BMA's response to the UK government's request for information about same-gender contact, that the medical profession can sometimes lag behind social conventions. And it does look like psychiatry was dragged kicking and screaming into removing queer identities from their diagnostic frameworks. Now in modern times, we think that's absolutely normal. But looking at it through the lens of history, it wasn't such an easy decision for them. Yeah, like whilst I had heard about, you know, the specific years that homosexuality was removed as a diagnosis, I was not aware of the fact that it still remained within another form under another name, and which was then changed to another name, another diagnosis. So yes, it was very much dragged kicking and screaming, as, as you say. And so any narrative about the progress that psychiatry has made with regards to queer identities really needs to include the names of the social activists who helped drive it from the outside. And it really is a story that the queer community themselves helped write. Mm. Yes. We do live in a society that's been heavily influenced and changed for the better by these people. I do agree. Hammy, what were your takeaways from the article, our background reading and the interview with Professor King? I have to admit, it was very eye-opening to read about this history, this quite negative history that psychiatry has around sexuality and gender identity. But I think it was important to learn more about it, actually, because only by knowing where we were before and the mistakes that were made before, I think, can we move forward. And whilst it was quite sobering at the same time, it does give me hope seeing how far we've come. I mean, just, just looking at this country, knowing that there's an official special interest group for LGBT individuals within the Royal College, I think that's quite encouraging and that's quite good. I really can only see things getting better, I hope. Professor King's editorial, Stigma in Psychiatry, seen through the lens of sexuality and gender, is in the November issue of BJ Psych International. Please do join us again for more discussion on the journal. I've been Sachin Shah. And I've been Hamilton Morin. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.